1983, Avianca Airlines flight number 11 took off from Paris, the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, and it was bound for Madrid. That flight, that plane, that crew had started in Frankfurt. They flew to Paris. From Paris, they were to go to Madrid, and from Madrid, they were to fly across the Atlantic Ocean to Bogota, Colombia. Flight number 11 is still a daily flight that Avianca Airlines runs. You can fly from Madrid to Bogota uh, any day of the week that you want. Now, as the plane was coming into land at uh, Madrid Airport, it was nighttime, it was dark, five miles of visibility. The pilot was preparing to make an instrument's landing, uh, and as he was coming about seven and a half miles away from the airport, suddenly the plane crashed into the ground. Actually, it didn't crash so much as bounce. It hit a hill, then it bounced on another hill, and then it finally came to land on a third hill about seven miles from the airport. Debris was spread everywhere. 181 people were killed. It was the second deadliest avian accident, aviation accident uh, in Spanish territory ever. Now, uh, there's a rumor about that flight. They did investigations. Uh, The investigators revealed that it was pilot error. He miscalculated where the plane was. But the rumor about the flight that has persisted, I think it persisted because it was in the original news reports, the rumor is that the the pilot, while he was flying, um, that, that the plane was warning the pilot of where he was. That, that you can hear, this is the rumor, that you can hear on the cockpit voice recorder, the plane warning the pilot, saying over and over again in that warning voice, pull up, pull up, pull up, because the plane supposedly knew where it was, even though the pilot did not. And the pilot supposedly had said to the machine, oh, shut up, and turned it off. Now, that was the rumor. There's no evidence that it actually happened. That's not what's on the cockpit voice recorder. The plane did not warn him that way. But a lot of people believe that that's what happened, that this pilot heard the warning and absolutely ignored it, and then because of that, 181 people were killed. Now, why do you suppose that's such an interesting rumor, such a fascinating story, that, that it would be so believable that a pilot would ignore such a warning? I think it's probably because we're not very good at heeding warnings ourselves. We're pretty good at at ignoring them. You've done it. I've done it, right? Uh, It would make sense that a pilot would ignore a warning like this. And we all know, we all know that one of these times when you ignore somebody's warning, there's going to be consequences. They're going to catch up with you. You know that. Today, this morning, we're going to launch a study of your soul's warning system. Uh, starting today with breaks here and there over the summer for vacations and special guest preachers. And uh, we're going to spend the rest of uh, the spring and summer studying what the Bible says about your conscience. I've been reading about this for for a while. Uh, A lot of authors observe that the conscience is among the most important and most often neglected topics in all of Scripture. They ask readers, when was the last time you heard a sermon about your conscience? Well, after today, you'll be able to answer that question. Uh, This morning, I want to introduce the topic. I want to introduce uh, the topic of the conscience by answering two basic questions. We're going to talk about what your conscience is, what is a conscience, and then we're going to talk about how you should respond to it. Actually, those questions will be intermingled. Why did God give you a conscience? What's it for? Why is this such an important topic? The Puritans wrote about the human conscience a lot, but we don't very often, and I, I wonder about why that is. 
So we're going to talk about what your conscience is, and along the way this morning, I'm going to chart a path for where we're going to go over the next couple of months. So the word conscience is in the Bible about 33 times, but one of the places that is most helpful in understanding what it is is in the book of Romans. And I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn me to the book of Romans. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 2. Actually, I'm going to start reading in chapter 1 in just a couple of minutes, but I would like you to have your Bibles open to the book of Romans. Now, while you're turning there, you should know if you're visiting with us this morning, this is not our normal practice. Our normal practice is to move very carefully through books of the Bible. We just finished the letters of John. In the fall, Lord willing, we're going to move through Ecclesiastes. And then after that, maybe the beginning of the year, we might be done by then, we're going to start working through Matthew. So that's our normal practice. But we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this topic that is before us of your conscience. We're going to depend on a few a few key texts. Today, Romans 2 is that text, uh, even as we think about this. So Romans 2 is where I want to go, but to get there, we're going to start by tracing Paul's argument. Uh, Romans is a very tightly argued book. It's a summary of the message that the apostle Paul preached. Paul was a church planter, and he had never been to Rome, but there was a church there, and he was hoping that he could get to Rome, and then the the church in Rome would financially support him as he went further west into Spain to do ministry there. That was his goal. So Romans is kind of like his missionary application. Dear church in Rome, this is what I believe. Do you believe this too? Would you send me? Would you give me money so that I can go spread this message elsewhere? That's kind of what Romans is. And he begins, as you would expect Paul to begin, with the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read these verses a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday, but I want to look at Romans 1.1, if you would, with me again, just a minute. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, the good news that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's good news, he's preaching it. And who's the good news about? Verse 3, it regards his son. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Paul's conviction as the book unfolds, that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the exalted one. And because he is our Savior and he is the exalted one, he is our coming judge. He is the one to whom all human beings are accountable by right of who he is. He's God the Son in the flesh, and he's the Son of David. And by right of what he has done, he was crucified for our sins, buried, and rose again. The whole world is going to answer to him someday. He's the only one qualified for this position, to be the judge of the whole world, and everyone who has ever lived will be accountable to him and to his judgment. We remind ourselves of that every, now, every Sunday that we gather. When he sings songs about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus, he's going to clothe the poor with crowns in the kingdom he calls theirs. Uh, let, let condemnation cease because the, the Lamb of God was slain, was buried, was raised When we sing these excellent songs, we remind ourselves of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. We're singing about the reality that Paul is uh, is writing about here. We do it it poorly. Well, we do it well, but still poorly in comparison to who he is, right? 
our singing, the best human singing that has ever been done, the best songs that have ever been written, the best orchestras or bands that have ever led singing, they still fail in comparison to the glory of the Lord Jesus. It's like describing the Grand Canyon as a little hole in the ground when we sing our songs in comparison to who the Lord Jesus is. Um, Have you ever been to Independence Hall? Uh, Some of you have. You've been to Independence Hall in Philadelphia and you go on your tour. I wonder if they told you when you went on your tour about the founding fathers and what they were thinking in the 1780s when they got to Article 2 of the Constitution and they wrote about the chief executive officer, the President of the United States. They were writing about this office, and even as they were writing about this in the Constitution, they were thinking about the man who was chairing those meetings. George Washington was sitting up on the platform leading those meetings. And they wrote about the President of the United States and what he would do and what he would be like because they had in their mind George Washington. George Washington is qualified to do this. We're going to write this office so that George Washington can be the President of the United States because only he is qualified to be President of the United States because of what he's done leading us through the revolution, his military work, his He's a war hero. He's an honorable person. Uh, We'll write this office for him. Well, in an infinitely greater way, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who's qualified to come and judge the living and the dead. And now the question that consumes Paul in the first several chapters of this book is about how anyone, how any of us will possibly stand in that day of judgment. How will any of us pass If Jesus is the judge and he reads out the verdict of all of us, how is it that anybody's going to hear him say, not guilty? Actually, we want more than not guilty. We want the Lord Jesus to look at us and say, innocent. Or even better yet, we want the Lord Jesus to declare, righteous. You're righteous. It's a question that Paul raises because no one is righteous. No one is innocent. Now, Paul, when he's writing this letter, he had some imaginary conversation partners, people that would appear in his mind, and he would answer some of their questions or some of their objections. And and in Romans chapter 2, the the first one is this imaginary conversation partner is a representative of the Jews who who comes to Paul and says, well, I know, (laughs) I know that the Jews are going to be able to stand when, when Jesus is judge of the earth. I know that Jews will pass because we have the law. We have the law of Moses. We have, we have the Ten Commandments. God picked us. We're his people. God didn't pick the Romans. God didn't pick the Greeks. God didn't pick the Assyrians. God didn't pick the uh, uh, Babylonians. Our family tree, we've got Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got David. The Old Testament is about our family. We're going to pass. Of course we're going to pass because we have the law. And Paul says, oof, not so fast. Uh, Look with me at Romans 2.12. The first part of the verse, uh, Paul talks about Gentiles, people who don't have the law, who weren't given the law, who don't have the religious pedigree that the Jews do. And, and the uh, Jews would, would find the first half, they would like this part. All who sin apart from the law or without the law will also perish apart from the law. And Paul's Jewish conver- uh, conversation partner would say, well, of course, of course, if you don't have the law, you're dead. You've got to know what, what God wants in order to do what God wants. If you don't have the law, you're going to break it, and of course, you're going to be accountable for it. I'm not sure that they would be as thrilled with what is in the second half of verse 12. Uh, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And then he says, and all who sin under the law, with the law in their possession, will be judged 
by the law. Oof. Verse 13, look, it says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It's not just having the Bible. It's not just reading the Bible. It's not just uh, listening to the Bible. You have to obey the Bible. Those who obey the law. Now, um, some of you are wondering, I think Paul is writing hypothetically here. He, he, he's going to say to us, he's going to show us, there's no one who can obey the law well enough to be declared righteous. But if someone imagines that you could, if you imagine that you can earn this declaration, obeying the law and doing it perfectly is the only way you can. You can't, but if you could, that would be the only way. Now in verse 14, Paul starts to talk about those who don't have the law and how we think about them. They're still guilty. How is it that God can justly condemn those who do not have the law, which is everyone uh, but the Jews? This is a vast majority of people. It's an important question. See, we believe that in order to have, for someone to be reconciled with God, to have a relationship with God, to be declared righteous by Jesus, you have to hear and believe the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You have to hear that message and you have to believe that message. But what about people who never got a chance to hear that message? Uh, that doesn't seem fair. They never had a chance to hear the message. So how, how is God going to condemn them for not obeying rules that they never heard? How is God going to condemn them for not believing in a Savior that they never heard about? That does not seem fair. Now verse 14. Indeed, he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. We'll stop there for a minute. This is the key phrase in the Bible, the law written on their hearts. Paul is arguing that human beings made in God's image have within them already a knowledge of right and wrong. It's written there by God himself and everyone has it and people show it by obeying it. Sometimes. They, they are almost a law unto themselves. They carry around with them this certain knowledge of right and wrong. It's in their DNA. It's part of their instincts. God made them this way. He has written this law on their hearts. Now, Paul is, is arguing this um, this is the second time in Romans that Paul has argued that God has revealed himself to people who don't have the law. So in, in uh, don't have the Bible. So in Romans 2.12, uh, it's the law written on their hearts. But look back at Romans 1.18. There's more revelation for those who don't have the Bible or who haven't heard about Jesus. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, what truth are they suppressing? Well, here it is. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. How? How has God made it plain to them? What may be known about God? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has revealed himself in nature and God has revealed himself in law in your heart. Now, Paul would be quick to say that this heart revelation is uh, corrupted by sin. That's what sin does. Last winter, I had a major hard drive failure on my computer. Tried to turn my computer on. It was wonderful. It was a Saturday night. I was just printing out my sermon that I had all written, and I turned my computer on, and my computer said no. So uh, I took my computer to the repair shop. It was a major hard drive failure. And you know what? I had not properly backed up my documents. That was foolish. Probably some warning that I did not heed. So um, the computer was repaired and uh, the computer came back and the technician said, we, we think we saved all your documents. We think they're here. And the, the files are there and most of them work really well. But every now and then I'll click on some file that I really need that I used three years ago and, I'll, and it will say, Windows cannot open this file. And I'd say, oh. Or sometimes it'll open and it'll just be a box, a a white screen with squares on it. I don't speak square, so it's really hard, really hard to read. So some of the files work, some of the files are there but are corrupted, some of the files you can't even open. That's kind of the way it is with God's law on our hearts. It's there, sin has distorted some of it. So we do, by nature, some of the things that God requires, but not perfectly and not always. But, but just the hints of it are there to show us that God has written his law in our hearts. Now, is what Paul, write, is what Paul wrote here, is this true? Is this true? Is there this universal human knowledge of right and wrong? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the early pages of Mere Christianity. He said that human beings have phrases we use all the time when we argue with one another. Uh, We use these phrases like, that's not fair. Or we say things like, I was here first. Or, you promised. Or, leave him alone. He's not hurting you. Sounds like a schoolyard, right? Those are the things that we say to each other all the time in our arguments. And, And Lewis says... When you make those arguments, what happens is that people don't deny the standard. Uh, They deny that the standard applies to them in this particular situation. For example, you say, you need to do this because you promised. People don't look at you and say, promises are stupid. Nobody keeps promises. Who wants a promise? It doesn't matter. Instead, they'll say, yeah, but here's the reason why I don't need to keep that promise. As if promises are still valid, but it doesn't apply to me in this situation. Or... um, I was here first. People don't argue that the I was here first doesn't apply, uh, isn't true, isn't universally true. They argue that I was here first doesn't apply in this particular situation. You see, uh, Lewis is saying universal rules written on our hearts. It's there. And to that law, we are all accountable. Additionally, there's this thing that Paul writes about called the conscience. Look what Paul wrote in verse 15. We'll continue. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Here's what your conscience does. Your conscience bears witness. And now we're coming to a definition of what a conscience is. I want to define it this way. Your conscience is that internal witness 
that reminds you of what you believe about right and wrong. It's this internal witness that reminds you of what you believe about right and wrong. It's a moral faculty. It's an internal witness. It serves to remind you of your own beliefs about right and wrong. Human beings are moral creatures. Animals are not moral creatures. Human beings are moral creatures. And so we have this sense of right and wrong. You think your dog has a sense of right and wrong, but it does not. He has been trained to look guilty when he does something wrong, but he actually has no shame at all. And your cat doesn't even pretend to have shame. (laughs) Right? They're animals. They're not moral creatures. But human beings have this conscience. Verse 15 tells us what your conscience does. Sometimes it accuses you and sometimes it defends you. It speaks to you through your thoughts and it vindicates you and it shames you. That's what your conscience does. Now, just to finish this paragraph, uh, verse 16. So this is happening in time. Your conscience accuses and defends. Someday your conscience, what your conscience has said to you, will be made evident in that day of judgment. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the judge. He will be the one doing it, judging secrets. It will judge what your conscience has told you and how you listened to it or did not listen to it. And and Paul says, as my gospel declares, this is part of what he's been telling people from the beginning, you're accountable to God, even the secret things. Your conscience tells you you're accountable to God for Jesus Christ the judge will come someday. Your conscience is active now. It's, it's warning you. It's prompting you. It's God's good gift. It's like nerves in your fingers that warn you to move away from, your hot, from a hot stove. So your conscience is there to warn you about what you are thinking about doing or what you have done. He gave it to you so that you will listen to it and obey it knowing you're accountable to him. Listen, God knows that you're accountable to him. And because you're accountable to him, he gave you a conscience to warn you so you don't uh, make your judgment worse, so that, that you don't pile more and more sins upon yourself to face judgment by the Lord Jesus. He gave you a conscience to help you. Heeding it is, is a blessing. Uh, my wife and I are shopping for a new car. It's a wonderful experience. Um, it's been about 10 years since we bought a car. Car shopping has changed in 10 years. So uh, uh, I'm amazed. What I'm amazed about is all the safety features in cars these days. It's amazing what your car will do. There's cameras everywhere. Your car has, uh, if you buy a new car and pay enough money for it, you can have radar and sensors, backup warnings. Your car will brake for you if it thinks you're going to hit someone. It will steer for you if you think you're going to wander out of your lane. There are airbags everywhere. 10, 12, 14 airbags. Cup holders have airbags these days just to keep your coffee safe. You can be in a 10-car pileup and your coffee will still be there. It'll be beautiful. Now, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts were optional. Do you remember those days? No one wore it because it was just a pain. And now there's all these safety features. Soon it's going to be law. You have to wear a helmet in the car. Now, why, is, why are all these safety features there? Because cars can be dangerous. You can do a lot of damage with a car. It is even more dangerous to fall into the hands of the living God. So he's given you a conscience to all human beings. It's there to witness to you. It's there to protect you. It's there to warn you. Do you remember the name Jack Abramoff? 
Jack Abramoff was involved in the lobbying bribery scandals in the early 2000s. Well, 2006 is when he was convicted and sent to prison. He, he said, as he was on his way to prison, God sent me 1,000 hints that he didn't want me to keep doing what I was doing, but I didn't listen, so he set off a nuclear bomb. God, God gives you his uh, conscience. It's a good gift. Listen to it. Heed it. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that, that the word conscience appears 33 times in the New Testament. Let me just talk about some of them briefly here. Paul used it a dozen times or so to defend himself, to talk about his clean conscience. Um, Acts 23.1. I wrote these verses on, on the back of the note sheet, I think. Yeah, uh, yes, it's somewhere there. Acts 23.1, he says... Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. I have a clean conscience. Or Romans 9.1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms this through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The apostles uh, wrote a series of uh, letters uh, commending passages, commending us to lead lives that produce clean consciences. One of the ways that followers of Jesus grow is they grow towards clean consciences. Um, look at um, Romans 13:5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. You should obey the government for the sake of your conscience. Or 1 Timothy 1:5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love comes from having a clean conscience. 1 Timothy 3.9 says you can't be a deacon without a clear conscience. It's one of the requirements. They, deacons, must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, Romans 14b, uh, 22b says it's a blessing to have a clear conscience. He doesn't use the word conscience there, but this is what he's writing about your conscience. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Your conscience bears witness. It's a basic place to start. Now I want to finish this morning by talking about four clarifications about your conscience, four things we need to explore. These are kind of going to set the pattern for the weeks that are to come when we think about what the Bible says about your conscience. Some of these come from uh, a book written by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, which is a fine book about conscience. I'll pass these on to you. So first, number one, your conscience is for you and you only. Your conscience is for you and you only. Your conscience is between you and God, and your conscience, your conscience is not the objective standard of truth, of right and wrong, for anybody else. Remember how I define conscience. So conscience is a witness about what you believe about right and wrong. You may be wrong about what is right and wrong. Probably in some ways you are, so am I. But your conscience testifies to you about what you believe about right and wrong. Your conscience tells you if you're following your own convictions. I wonder if this sometimes is why Christians are hesitant to talk about the conscience. See, our objective standard for right and wrong for truth is the Bible. So we study it, we read it, we talk about it, we try to understand what it says. And, and we all agree you have to submit to the Bible. Followers of Jesus submit to the scriptures. But your conscience is not an objective standard like the Bible. And you are the one, the only one, who must submit to your conscience. Now, I say that 
It may be that you are in places under authority where someone else's conscience plays a role in your life. That very well may be. In your home, it is the conscience of your parents that has ruling authority over your behavior. Some of you attend a Christian school or a Christian college where they have a rule book and for a season you submit to those rules in that environment. If your college, your Christian school, your family is wise, they may talk about the difference between biblical convictions and family preferences or biblical convictions and institutional preferences. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. This is how we operate around here. You may find yourself in a situation like that. That's, that's fine. Uh, but you, in general, don't have the authority to impose your conscience on others. Last week we talked about the limits of the authority of a pastor or elders in a church. Here's another place that limits authority, your conscience. Uh, limited authority. You have limited authority to demand what other people do according to their conscience because your conscience is for you and you only. Now, number two, secondly here, your conscience differs from others. Your conscience differs from others. Here's where things get heated and boy, is this going to be fun over the next few weeks. Um, What do Christians do when they differ about their convictions? That's probably another reason why we don't talk about conscience. Uh, here's a list. Here's a list. There's, well, before I do that, there's, there's two major sections of the New Testament that are devoted to this. In a few weeks, we're going to start walking carefully through Romans 14. Um, Paul calls those issues adiaphora. That's the Greek word, adiaphora. It means um, matters of indifference, issues that are secondary to the gospel. And he tries to help us walk through those things. Here's, here's a list of some of them. Uh, how do Christians treat Sundays? Not the ones from Dairy Queen. We know what to do with those. Okay. Um, what about listening to secular music, dancing, drinking alcohol in moderation, watching particularly TV shows or movies or watching movies at all, reading Harry Potter books, homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics, school choices, Ooh, public, private, home, discipline styles for your children, Body piercings, tattoos, eating unhealthy fast food. Although we all agree that Chick-fil-A is fine for Christians under any circumstances. So, (laughs) next. Going into debt. How many children a married couple should have and when? Uh, Smoking cigars. Dating versus courtship. Multi-site churches. Multi-service churches. Watching mixed martial arts for entertainment. That's just a little list. A little list. Um, be careful what you do with these things. We're going to learn how to be careful with those things. Uh, Those are some of our more contemporary challenges. Here's the reason why you need to be careful. I want to read to you something that Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great preacher in Great Britain in the 20th century. He pastored a church in London for 30 years through World War II. You can still listen to recordings of his preaching, and he is a great preacher. But he said this once from the pulpit. Listen, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks. Okay, this is bad, all right? (laughs) Then he goes on. I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats, 
I'm glad I didn't wear my spats today. Shoes instead of boots or who carries a cane in his hand. The modern, this it's worse. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. <laughs> oh no. Okay, listen. If I had, he says, if I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. I believe that too, but you can use some soap. Okay? Listen, when I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, a radio, some of you sinners... When I enter a house and find they have a radio, I know at once that there is something wrong. Your five valve sets, he's referring to radio again, may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. Oops. I'll probably read that to you again someday because I think that's so funny. But, ooh. It reminds us of some of the things that we say, the things that we need to be careful about. Your conscience is for you and for you only. Now, what do we do with these differences that we have over these issues? Some of these issues that I mentioned, what do we do with these differences? Christians have tried at least two different approaches. We could form new denominations and new churches around our convictions. This is a stereotype of fundamentalists. Right? This is not necessarily true of American fundamentalists, but this is how we solve this problem. We're going to form our own church, and in our own church, we know what we believe about all these things, and we don't let you get away with any of those things. In our church, we don't smoke, we don't dance, we don't drink, we don't go to movies, we don't watch television shows, and that's the way we honor God, and you're going to do that if you're a member of our church. Right? Okay. That's the American fundamental way uh, to handle this. But the Bible says in Romans 14 that we're supposed to welcome and receive one another that have different convictions than we do. I'm not sure that's the answer. Or, here's another solution that we try. This maybe is where we're leaning now as uh, evangelicals. We could just be wishy-washy about them all as if, as if we have no opinion. You know, we, we don't ever talk about it because we don't have any opinion about it at all. And I don't know, and it's okay. Whatever's okay with you is okay with me. And that won't do either. Paul says you should have a firm mind about these things. Be convicted. Have a conscience about this. He wants us to be very sure and very generous at the same time. Do you think we can figure out how that works? Can we worship as a church and be very sure as individuals about this and very generous towards people who disagree with us about them? We're going to try. We're going to work on it. So your conscience differs. Now, number three, your conscience can be damaged. Your conscience can be damaged. In fact, I know it already is. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's mind. Uh, next, next time that we're together to talk about this issue, we're going we're gonna to talk about the ways in which a conscience can be broken. 1 Timothy 4.2 says that you can have a seared conscience. We'll talk about that. Your conscience can be insensitive and your conscience can be oversensitive. Sometimes it can be insensitive and oversensitive at the same time. D.A. Carson says we live in a wonderful world, sarcastically, we live in a wonderful world where we have no convictions about sex and what sex means and what sex, how we do sex, but we're very concerned about whether or not our coffee beans are fairly sourced. 
insensitive, oversensitive? Uh, Jesus hinted at this when he talked about the Pharisees who strain at gnats but swallow camels. Insensitive and oversensitive consciences. To help with that, we're going to turn to number four. Number four, your conscience can be calibrated. Your conscience can be calibrated. This is the goal, actually. This is where we're going. Our goal is that each of us would have consciences that are in sync as much as possible with the Bible. Your conscience can grow. It can change. This happened to Peter in Acts 10. We'll look at the story in greater detail. But Peter was very careful as a faithful Jew not to eat unclean animals animals that violated the laws of purity. He was very careful about this. One day he had a dream. He was sleeping, taking a nap in the afternoon, and, and God presented before him a bunch of animals, unclean animals, and, and a voice from heaven said, Take, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter said, No, I don't eat unclean food. It's never wise to try to be holier than God is. And, uh, God said again, no, Peter, take and eat. I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm changing your conscience. I'm calibrating your conscience. May God do the same with us, right? So today we talk about what your conscience is, this inner witness. Next time we're going to talk about a, a, a broken conscience. We'll spend some time talking about how our consciences are broken. And then, then we're going to focus one Sunday on how to get a clean conscience. Spend some time in the Old Testament there. And then we're going to begin walking very slowly through Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 about these passages about how Christians with different consciences treat one another. It's the plan. Your conscience is a good gift from God, brothers and sisters. Listen to it. And let's learn together how to steward it faithfully, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are thankful to you for your word. We're thankful to you for its uh, clarification, how it tells us about what is right and what is wrong, and it tells us what to do when we disagree, too. Ah, Father, we don't talk about conscience very much, but we are thankful to you for it. Lord, I do pray that you would, over the weeks that are to come, calibrate our consciences, that you would shape them, uh, that, that we would Uh, be convicted and shamed over the things that grieve your heart and that our consciences would vindicate us in the ways in which you have given us things richly to enjoy. Calibrate them. Help us us to reach unity together. Lord, uh, not necessarily about all these issues that I mentioned, but unity together about the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his supremacy. Help us to love one another even as we disagree confidently. Help us to do this, we pray. Lord, we want to be a testimony to those around us that you can bring together very different people in one body. You can unite us in the Lord Jesus despite our differences. We want to testify through our unity to the world around us. So help us, help us, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.